We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Thank you, Leanne. And if you have that open in front of you, do please keep it there so that we can keep taking in Jesus at work here in his word. Now, the title for tonight's talk is, Who is Christianity For? And I think there's a really easy knee-jerk answer we give to that, right? It's for everyone. It's for anyone. And isn't that wonderful? But what if the answer to that question is actually even better than that. That's what Jesus is going to show us this evening. Now, think therefore about that question, who is Christianity for? And while you think about that, let me tell you about how becoming a parent has changed me. It's made me a lot more judgmental than I used to be about little children. Before having children of my own, I was very laid back. You know, children are a bit wild. They do slightly crazy things. They scream. They can be a nuisance. And I used to think, fine, live and let live. It's just what children do. But not now I have children of my own. Because now I have children of my own, I've got a different question running through my head. I look at a child being a little terror, and I think to myself, do I want you around my children? Do I want them to become like you? Do I want them to get all of the stuff that you undoubtedly have to teach them. And I think to myself, no. Now, let me be clear, I don't think they're evil uh, as a result of that. I'm not horrible to them. I'm just as nice as I always was. And in fact, I'm not really even judging them because I have it on good authority, my sisters, that I was a terrible child myself. But now I am thinking like a concerned parent. And I want to know what impact are you going to have on my 
child. That's just wise parenting, isn't it? Maybe that's the way you feel about your own children. Or maybe you're here as a child and you know that's how your parents feel about some of your friends. Now, there is something wise about that. Because we're very impressionable, especially when we're young. We can't help learning from the people we choose to surround ourselves with. And you think of Bible verses like Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked. Um, Blessed is the one who is not standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the company of mockers. Or 1 Corinthians 15-33. Do not be misled, Paul says. Bad company corrupts good character. So there's good wisdom in that. When I care about who my children spend time with, I'm just trying to be a good father. And yet, do you know, that's not what the best father chose to do. Because what would have happened if God looked at us and said, do I want you around my son? What if he'd done that? If he had, we would have been lost. We can be so thankful that even if a good father tries to make that kind of discerning judgment, the best father didn't. We were the ones who benefited. And if we don't understand that, if we can't see that, then we won't get what Jesus is doing, either in our passage or in the world today, and we won't get what he's offering either. Who is Christianity for? The answer isn't just anyone, everyone. It's much better than that. It's for sinners. That's what we're going to see in these verses. It's for sinners. Matthew puts together these two scenes to make one point, one big point, and it's this. Jesus has come to forgive sinners, and he loves doing it. He's come to forgive sinners, and he loves doing it. And as we look at the first scene, what it will show us is that that is Jesus' priority. And as we look at the second scene, what we'll see is that doing that is Jesus' delight. So, first scene, it's Jesus' priority. There in verse 1, Jesus is crossing the lake. Uh, Again, he's on the move, like we heard last night from Ellie. He was rejected by the people of Gadara. He comes back to the other side, back to his own town, and then have a look at verse 2. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, this miracle is is quite familiar to us, so maybe you're thinking to yourself, hang on, (laughs) there's a lot missing in that verse, isn't there? A lot. What happened to the roof? They couldn't get in because the house was crowded, remember? What, What happened to the fact they had to literally dig through the roof to lower the man in? Where did all that go? Look down again, it's it's not even a footnote. Why did Matthew leave that out? How could Matthew leave out the drama of of the roof and the tiles and all of that? Well, Matthew leaves it out because there's an even greater drama going on here than all of that with the digging and the tiles. And Matthew wants to focus us on that. And so verse 2 is a miracle of compression as Matthew puts the spotlight on Jesus and all he's doing. He wants to peel away anything else that could distract us so that we can see Jesus and his compassion, the way he sees their faith, the way he speaks, courage and kindness. Take heart, son, 
your sins are forgiven. And above all, how he does the first and best thing he can do for this man by forgiving his sin. Matthew cuts the chase because he wants us to see Jesus' priority is forgiving this man's sin and therefore meeting his deepest need, not just the visible need, but the deepest need there is, sins forgiven, like we were singing about earlier. So let's just join the dots on that. If that's what Jesus can do, who must he be? And so immediately we see a reaction. Uh, Have a look at verse 3. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. There's a logic in what they're saying. Sin is ultimately against God. And so forgiving sin is something only God can do. Therefore, Jesus is blaspheming. Looks logical. The truth is, it's only blasphemy if you don't really know who Jesus is. And so in this encounter, he wants to show them that his identity is big enough to explain his activity. Have a look at verse 4. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? That must have been a terrifying thing. To be thinking one thing and then have it named by Jesus in that moment. But of course, just like he knows the paralytic's deepest needs, he also knows the thoughts of their hearts and he challenges them on it. Verse five, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? See, Jesus is drawing the question of authority out into the open with this question. Because the thing is, if you are a fraud, if you're making it all up, then it might actually be safe to talk about trying to forgive people's sins because sin is by and large an invisible reality, especially in a paralyzed man. And so nobody would be able to tell whether you could do it or not. But if you say to a paralyzed man, get up, there's really only two ways that can go, isn't there? Either nothing happens and you have the most awkward moment in history, or Jesus says, get up, and the man does, and you see that his words work. And Jesus wants to leave zero ambiguity about that. Verse six, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he says, get up, and Verse 7, then the man got up and went home. And of course, verse 8, the crowd were amazed at this authority. Jesus shows that he does have the authority to forgive sins. And because sin is the root cause of all the brokenness in our world, that means Jesus has authority to put all things right. And one day... That is what he will use his authority to do. All things one day at his command will be set free from what Paul calls bondage to decay in Romans chapter 8. Perhaps tonight you're listening to this and you find yourself in agony and anguish, either of body or mind or soul, but you are trusting Jesus. Take heart, sister, brother, He has done for you already the first and best thing he knows to do. He has forgiven your sins. And as surely as this man gets up, he will 
one day release you from that agony. He will. Just you wait. There will be cosmic restoration. But it all begins here. It all begins with the forgiveness of sins. And when Jesus talks about having authority on earth to forgive sins, he doesn't mean, well, I can do it here, but I would struggle on Mars, so don't let too many billionaires get up there. He isn't saying that at all. He's saying the power to forgive, which belongs to heaven and seems so remote from us in our wrongdoing, that power, that authority has come down, right down to you, to you. He has that authority. The forgiving power of God is unleashed in Jesus and he loves to exercise it. Forgiving sins is Jesus' priority. He has that authority. This is what it looks like when Jesus uses that authority. I thought it was so helpful a few nights ago when Ellie was talking about how Jesus uses his authority. Just think about that again, looking at this passage. So often, we use authority to crush others and put them down so that we can be lifted up. Or we use our authority to cover up and conceal. People in charge say, trust me, just, just take my word for it. But just look at how Jesus uses his authority. Don't you love him? He never uses authority to burden or to coerce or to diminish, but to forgive and to heal and restore. He doesn't use it to cover up, but here, as he exercises his authority, he reveals himself and his agenda ever more clearly for everyone to see. That's what it looks like when he uses his authority. So often, people who aren't yet Christians are turned off by Jesus' authority claim because they know that if they become a Christian, they have to submit to his authority. They know that. But tragically, what they don't seem to know is how Jesus will use his authority in their lives. He'll use it like this. He'll use it like this to set you free, to forgive you, to restore you. Submit to his authority, and this is how he will use it. There's so much for us to learn here as believers in our churches. Don't you long for our churches to be places where his authority is exercised and the authority we have under him is used in a Jesus-shaped way. Jesus has come to forgive sinners and it's his priority. And then you look at the second scene, you see that it's his delight. He's come to forgive sinners, he loves doing it and it's his delight. In verses 9 to 13, Matthew tells us about a tax collector called Matthew being called by Jesus. So in other words, we have the gospel writer introducing himself to us. And I wonder how you would choose to be introduced in the Bible if you could be in the Bible. Isn't it humbling that the context Matthew chooses is not all the things that made him promising, showed his potential, all the gifts he could bring, but rather the sin he needed rescuing from. He wants the world to know that even though he is an apostle, even though he had the privilege of being with Jesus, seeing the most amazing things, it all began for him just as it does for us, with being called out of the mess he had made of his life. I think it's a beautiful way to introduce yourself. So humble. Now, Matthew also, in writing this passage this way, wants us to read these two scenes together. 
He wants us to see how each one makes sense of the other. And here's how that's working. So in the first scene, you could see the paralyzed man's paralysis, but you couldn't see his sin. That wasn't visible as he was lying on the mat. But you see, with Matthew, it's the other way round. His sin was very visible because he was a tax collector. He was colluding with the oppressive Roman Empire, probably on the take. He was a sinner and everyone knew it. His sin was so visible. But his paralysis wasn't. That inner paralysis that kept him at the tax collector's booth. And so I think we would see it as equally miraculous that both men get up. Do you notice that? Amazing that the paralyzed man gets up from his mat to walk home. But also verse 9, amazing that Matthew gets up from his tax collector's booth and leaves behind life as he'd known it so that he can follow Jesus and go with him. And beautifully, Matthew makes a point of recording that both men got to go home. That's what it looks like when Jesus is at work. Both men experienced his restoration, and both of these are offered in these passages so we can read them together. And for Matthew, going home with Jesus meant instant table fellowship. He leaves the tax collector's booth, and the very next thing we find him doing is sitting at the table of the Lord. It is that immediate and straightforward. Forgiveness from Jesus means instant table fellowship, which is so brilliant because it means that when Jesus forgives us, he doesn't just call us away from our sins and then leave us with a blank. He's calling us away from the thing that ruins us so that we can come and be with the one who truly satisfies, truly nourishes. That's why there's a feast. That's why there's a celebration in this passage. Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And isn't Jesus the most amazing combination in this passage? He brings together two things that feel like opposites to us. He's incredibly honest about sin. He talks about it up front. He sees it when no one else can in this paralyzed man. And at the same time, he's so attractive to sinners These tax collectors are coming. These sinners are coming. And for some reason, they are drawn to Jesus. They can relax around Jesus. And he wants to sit and eat with them. To eat with him and his disciples. Wouldn't it be amazing if today, Jesus and his disciples were still the best people for sinners to eat with? Wouldn't that be amazing? But sadly, more often, I'm afraid, where verse 11 than we are verse 10, where the Pharisees, scandalized by what we can see, verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So often, we are disgusted by what we see, the same way the Pharisees are. So often, that's what sinners outside think they'll discover when they come into our churches. And the Pharisees are scandalized, They can't see in Jesus what the tax collectors and sinners are seeing. They're disgusted. Why would Jesus risk his reputation? Why eat with them? See, back then, eating with someone was sending a very clear message. It wasn't like you happen to eat a sandwich on a train next to someone who's also coincidentally eating a sandwich. It was 
far more significant. It was sending a clear message. It was unambiguous. It was a little bit like this. When I tried to ask my now wife out, um, I invited her to go for coffee with me. And no matter how smooth I tried to be, I tried very hard, she knew from that point exactly what was going on. As she's told me since, a single Christian man asking a single Christian woman out for coffee is actually pretty unambiguous. Clearly, I was interested. But can I tell you, what Jesus does here is even less ambiguous than that. By eating with these people, Jesus was saying, I am for them. I want them near me. I'm interested in them. Jesus has come to forgive sinners. It's his priority and his delight. It's what Jesus loved doing, even though the Pharisees hated it. And so Jesus says this, verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. So in a way, maybe stop thinking about concerned parents trying to keep their children from the wrong kind of friend. And think instead of a doctor treating patients in need. That's what's going on in this scene. That's why Jesus is gathering them around him. And notice Jesus is not saying, I wholeheartedly approve and endorse everything these people are doing. In fact, he says something quite offensive by saying he's come as a doctor for the sick. He's saying, everyone here is sick and I am the one who's come to help. But you know, that's why he can be honest about sin and attractive to sinners at the same time. Because those two things go together if you're a good doctor. Clarity about the problem and care for the patient are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. And that makes a difference. If you were to come up to me afterwards and say, in your humble opinion, you think I could lose some weight... I would be offended by that, and maybe my face would show it too. But if you were my GP, and you said in your medical opinion, you think I could do with losing some weight, I won't be, well, I won't be as offended. Because I'll realize that you're not trying to hurt my feelings, you're actually trying to help me. Clarity about the problem is key if you care about the patient. And that's why Jesus can do this honest about sin, attractive to sinners thing. It feels like such an either-or for us, doesn't it, today in the 21st century? It feels like our culture doesn't understand that. A lot of the conversations almost sound as if people are saying, if you don't affirm everything I do, you can't possibly love me. And it's very easy for the church to respond in kind, to think that being honest about sin basically means being hostile to the people Jesus is interested in. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit can make us more like Jesus. Because look what's happening around him. For all his honesty about sin, sinners are flocking to him. Because they've seen what the Pharisees need to see. If Jesus is the doctor, and you don't think you're sick, then you don't need him. In saying this, Jesus is putting the ball in our court. He's saying, do you know you need me? Because if you don't, You're cutting yourself out of what he's doing. Do the Pharisees know their need? Do we? Verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is sending them back to scripture. He quotes there from Hosea 6, 6. 
He'll quote it again in Matthew chapter 12, when the Pharisees call out his disciples for doing something terrible like picking grain on the Sabbath. It's his go-to verse for drawing them out. He's saying, I know you're serious about the Bible. I know you're serious about God. But the God of the Bible is serious about mercy, not sacrifice. It is a tragedy when people care about the finer points of religion, but miss the thing God cares about most. And Hosea was writing about and to people who thought they could award themselves full marks for religious performance, but were blind to their own injustice. Jesus is offering the Pharisees a gift. He's quoting their scriptures, speaking their language, pleading with them to see their need. And here's why. Because the moment they can recognize their own sin before God, they will discover that mercy isn't just something God wants them to show, it's something he wants to show to them. The moment we acknowledge our sin to God, we discover he longs to show mercy to us. See, with the Pharisees, with us, holiness feels very fragile, doesn't it? It's like holding a lit matchstick in the middle of a choppy ocean feels like it could go out any moment. But it's not like that with Jesus. See, with Jesus, holiness isn't a thing that's fragile and under threat. Sin is. Because he's not another sick person in the room. He's the doctor with the ability and the authority to deal with our deepest need. Jesus has come to forgive sinners and he loves doing it. It's his priority and it's his delight. He wants to show mercy, and he will in the most costly way. Go back to that question from verse 5, which is easier to say. And in that moment, it seems like the easiest thing is to say your sins are forgiven because you could say it and get away with it. But keep going through the gospel, and you realize, compared to what Jesus will have to do to forgive our sins, it is much easier to tell a paralytic to get up and looks so easy in chapter 9 to say your sins are forgiven. Travel with Jesus to chapter 27. And you see that that authority to forgive sins is anchored in a moment of costly, beautiful sacrifice in his death on the cross. And as Jesus dies, that is the ultimate moment of honesty about sin. Because in that moment on the cross, Jesus shows exactly what sin does. How it hurls everything back at its maker, how it rejects him with such ugliness. And at the same time, Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate moment of attractiveness to sinners. Because there we see Jesus dying for us. There we see him saying, I have gone here for you because I love you this much. This is how far I will go to have you. That's what he shows us in his death on the cross. Who is Christianity for? So easy to parrot that knee-jerk answer. Anyone, everyone. But the answer the passage gives us is even better than that. It's for sinners. It's for sinners. Now, you see, if Christianity was just for anyone, everyone, that would be quite bland. That would be quite beige, to be honest. But because it's for sinners... There's something wonderful going on here. It means that God's love for you is specifically drawn to you at your very worst. 
that the things that you have done and that you do, that you hate, that you would hide from everyone, that you don't want anyone ever to see because they would drive them away, those things are known to Jesus and they do not drive him away. They will not drive him away because his love has come for sinners. Not even the worst thing about you will turn Jesus off you. He knows all of it and he still loves you. That is good news tonight if you have never trusted Jesus yourself. Please do. Come up afterwards. It's so easy. If you're here in the tent, you don't even have to leave without it. You don't have to leave Keswick. In fact, you could do it right where you are just by saying to him, Lord, I am sorry for these sins you see that I know are wrong. Thank you that you died for me to welcome me. Please make me yours. Simple as that. Don't delay. Stop listening at this point and do it if you really need to. But you know, it's not just good news for people who've never heard it before. It's also good news for us believers. Sometimes people say we shouldn't identify ourselves as sinners because if we've died with Jesus, we're raised with him and we're no longer identified by that. And that's getting at a very real truth. But here's the thing. This side of heaven, temptation still comes. The old stealth is still at work to draw us away from God. And we still fail, don't we? Christian, you need to know that it is still Jesus' priority and delight to forgive you. He doesn't stop loving it. He keeps doing it and loves doing it. My prayer has been that looking at Jesus here will change us to see that as glorious and wonderful. Perhaps that it would change our churches so that we would go back And in his spirit's power, they would become places where we are honest about sin and still attractive to sinners. By the way, that won't happen by us pretending we're the doctor. We won't do that well at all. That will happen as we're honest about our need for him, as we tell others the truth that they can come to him as well. That will happen as in our churches, his word is open and he speaks and we draw near and find healing and restoration for our sin-sick souls. I've been praying that that would be one of the things that changes for us. But I've also been praying that we would be blessed by this passage if we already are Christians. Because I suspect that one of the barriers to really enjoying this truth is that we secretly think passages like this are for others. They're very basic, very important for Christianity Explored, very important for baby Christians, but kind of alpha territory. Of course this truth is that, but it's also omega territory. It's something that is good news every day of our Christian lives. Because the problem is sometimes I think our confession of sin gets so routine that we wonder if God's forgiveness of our sins is routine as well. Sometimes we're going through the motions. Do we think that perhaps he might be going through the motions as well? The 19th century poet Heinrich Heine apparently said on his deathbed, God will forgive me. It's his job. And There's a sense in which it's Jesus' priority, yes. But if you say it's just his job, then it sounds like he's an unwilling office worker, just punching in, punching out. Is that what Jesus is like? No. No. He loves forgiving us. He loves it. This is his delight. That is why there's a feast when Matthew comes back to Jesus. That's why there's a feast. Because Jesus longs to draw sinners near. Let me finish with this. 
Can you tell the difference between these two different situations? The Deliveroo driver who comes to bring me food that I've ordered, very friendly as they hand over the brown bag, smelling of delicious Greek food or whatever, smiling because I did tip them, thank goodness. Can you tell the difference between that and my mum preparing the most delicious food because she's going to see me for the first time in the ages and she loves me? So often as believers, we're so lacking in joy because we think Jesus is at this end. We think he's forgiving us because he has to. He just has to, doesn't he? But the truth is, he's all the way over here. He forgives you, and he loves to do it. Forgiving you is not just something he's going through the motions on. He came to forgive sinners, and he loves doing it. And the wonderful thing is, when we come to him, acknowledging our sin, because this is what Jesus is like, that becomes an experience of his love. And as we do it, my prayer is that not only will we enjoy the feast, but we'll have the delight of seeing many of our friends, colleagues, fellow tax collectors and sinners enjoy the feast as well. We'll have the privilege of seeing Jesus wield his authority for us sinners against our sin. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, keep our hearts from growing cold to the amazing love you have shown us in your death. Help us, Lord, to see what you've done for us with soft and joyful hearts, whether this is brand new or whether this feels like something we've heard many times before. Please, Lord, help us to see your great delight in forgiving sinners and your joy in eating with us, that we might be those who take our place at the banquet table of the new creation and feast with you for ages and ages of unending splendor. And please, Lord, we pray, fill that banqueting table with many more who even this evening do not yet know you. We ask it for your glory.